This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Hello, listeners. Um, I've got terrible news for you. Um, Beth is actually, she has a cold, a very heavy cold. I spoke to her on the phone today and um, she is very, very croaky. Um, That's the penalty of having grandchildren. They are lovely, but they give you terrible germs. So anyway, Beth cannot make it um, and it will just be me burbling on. Now, before we start about new books in the library, um, this this is Wireless Books and this is Christine and we are brought to you by the Athenaeum Library um, 23 The Octagon and if you would li- if you hear books you'd like to take out all you have to do is become a member and we are a subscription library and it's $69 for the year which includes GST and you can start any time in the year it's just 12 months after you take your first books out. And we're also a wonderful option for Christmas, which is coming sooner than you'd think. Anyway, um, last time we talked about Eleanor Roosevelt, and who was First Lady of America for um, three and a half terms of her husband's, and she was notorious for having the most terrible food ever seen in the White House. And she, instead of um, hiring a professional, um, picked a woman that she knew, Henrietta Nesbitt, to be the White House housekeeper. Now, when Franklin D. Roosevelt died, um, he was succeeded by his vice president, um, Henry Truman. And Truman um, saw out the end of the war and and then was re-elected. Now, originally, the Trumans kept Mrs. Nesbitt on as his housekeeper and I think it was such a shock they just didn't want to have any changes particularly and um, it was possibly even a personal favourite Eleanor Roosevelt but Mrs Nesbitt um, she still felt that she knew best and she was told repeatedly that the Truman family disliked Brussels sprouts intensely which a lot of people share that dislike and she she kept serving Brussels sprouts and eventually Bess Truman just had enough and fired her. And so that was the end of Mrs Nesbitt in the White House. And I think that's sort of probably a fitting end. She, she, um, yes, her like will probably never be seen again, let's hope so. Now, this, Beth has probably picked a good time to be ill because I've got new books, but they're not really books that are, uh, to Beth's taste so in other words they're not grim murder thrillers I'm going to start with Joanna Trollope's latest one Mum and Dad now of course Joanna Trollope's been writing for um, just a long long time and she's she was sort of known sneeringly as writing um, Agar no, Agar Edgar I can't think of the name, the the type of stoves or ovens that um, posh people have in England that um, burn continuously. And she's moved on and she really writes about family dynamics and 
her books sort of tend to be my uh, multi generational, and this one is really three generations. Mum and Dad went to Spain oh, about twenty five years ago. Gus, they called Gus and Monica, and they left England to start a new life, um, building a vineyard. And Gus actually. He knew what he was doing. He has a great knowledge of the soils and the land he brought, and he has, he has actually, by amazingly hard work, has created um, a vineyard that produces award-winning wine and is well known and is is doing well ostensibly. And he's a difficult man, and Monica. I don't think she really wanted to go to Spain, but she followed dutifully has followed her husband and has worked as hard as he has. And they've made a life in Spain, although Monica is sort of a bit ambivalent anyway. And then Gus has a stroke and everything sort of gets thrown up into upheaval. And they have three adult children, two sons and a daughter. And... The adult children also have children of their own who are teenagers, though the youngest son, he has a newborn um, and who's about 18 months old and he's just newly married as well. And all three children have different um, takes on it. They, The oldest son, he doesn't, he's not really interested. He's got a career that's quite involving and his wife has never got on particularly well with Monica, so... He he just wants to sort of come and sort things out and then leave, and he he's also got a bit of chip on his shoulder because he thinks Monica doesn't pay attention to him, unlike the younger son, Jake, who is he feels the favourite, and this daughter Katie, she's a solicitor and she's never she's always felt that her mother doesn't really care for her as more interested in the boys. So they've got all this sort of dynamics on, and the mean also Katie's got two, no, three daughters who are all having their own problems, and and she's dealing with um, teenagers in this internet age, and so there's all this different stuff swirling around, and and Jake's got money problems, and he thinks coming into the vineyard and taking over from his father might solve all his problems, and. Well, Gus doesn't really want to have his children take over from him. He wants to keep on going. And so it's all big family rows and can they come together and come to a mutual solution. And um, I've read, as always, I've read a bit of it and it is pretty good. I think I probably might just read the whole of it when I get a chance. Now, the next one is another writer who's possibly a bit similar, Deborah Mogash. And she is the author of The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel. So that's what she's best known for. And she actually has a background in in working in films. And um, I don't know what she did. I think she's on the production side of films. Um, And she... Writes was writing novels on the side of her main job as as working in films, and then she got more and more successful. And she's written she's written quite a bit since um, the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, and this is um, yeah the the fourth book since since she had that big success, and it's called The Black Dress, and it's about 
Prue, who is 69 and she's been married for a very long time. And then suddenly her husband, who's who was just sort of de- declining into being a grumpy old man, went to a, went to therapy, um, started meditating and and exercising, and decided and got in touch with his spiritual side. And he just decided that he life was too short, and he wanted to f- to find himself. And finding himself didn't include being with Prue anymore. And so she's she's devastated about it. Not that she. She does kind of miss her husband, but not as much as possibly she should. But she she just misses the coziness of being married and being together with somebody. And she's she's just sort of lost. And then she's invited to a funeral of someone who is who was an acquaintance from a long time ago, but she thinks, oh, well, at least I'll get me out of the house. And so she goes to the funeral and she makes a mistake with the timing and attends somebody else's funeral. And nobody um, nobody says, oh, you're not supposed to be here or anything. She just sort of accepted. And it kind of makes a little bell go off on her head and, she's, and she starts attending funerals just, just to kind of... Entertainment is too strong a word for it. Just to have a bit of a human connection without too much stress stress on it. I think it's sort of relaxing for her to go and be amongst strangers and, and think about someone else's life. So she's with people, but she doesn't really have to participate or, or have any stress put on her. But of course, things, things happen and um, a merry dance is led. And yes, I think... That's a good one. As that's a goodie as well. Now the next author is called is Claire. Actually, the other thing I want to say about about the black dress, it actually ends up with it ends with um, everybody involved in the pandemic. That just at, so when the book ends, the pandemic is starting, and I think this is sort of going to be a trend for for more more um, books. In fact, I'll just go to Daniel Silver's latest one, The, the Salist, 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 hmm, dear, I do miss Beth because she can tell me how these things are pronounced. Um, and this is a book set gobsmack right in the middle of the pandemic. And he starts with the death of one of Russia's richest men but he's a man who resides in exile in London and he's waging a crusade against um, the kleptocrats, that's a good word isn't it, who have seized control of the Kremlin and so he's he has the money to surround himself with armed bodyguards yet somehow somebody um, gets, gets to him and he's found with a half-drunk glass of red wine, a stack of documents, and the documents are contaminated with a deadly nerve agent. So you know immediately, well, who who's the sort of person who does that? And um, yes, so so MI six is is immediately involved, and they think that the documents were delivered by one of his employers employees who is a prominent investigative reporter, and the reporter vanished hours after the killing. And so MI6 decide that she's a Moscow centre assassin. 
but his Daniel Silva's hero, um, Gabriel Alon, doesn't think that that's right, and he starts to nose around to see if he can find out who really is the person who who did it. And um, yes, so that's a fiction, but it's a fiction that's um, quite... You can really see that happening, can't you? That The way that Mr Putin behaves. And the last book I've got is by Claire North. And this has got nothing to do with pandemics, but maybe it does. It's Notes from the Burning Age. And Claire North is a non-diploma of an already published author. And she wrote The First Fifteen Lives of Harry August. And that was just an amazing book. A sort of a science fiction book about somebody who who lives and then is born again and each each life is a different life because each life they know more about what's going to happen and they um, just work or use the parameters of their knowledge to improve their lives or to change their lives or to change the lives of people around them. And this is a different life. I think this is more a book about climate change. It's set in well of course a future and it's um, it's just a, a future that is totally different from the present um, it's the lead character Ven is a holy man he's a keeper of um, ancient archives and it's his duty to interpret the texts and sorting useful knowledge from the heretical ideas of the burning age which was a time of excess and climate disaster so no no prizes for guessing when the burning age was and so then um, there's a revolutionary brotherhood um, approaches him asking him to translate stolen writings and when he does so it just changes his mind about everything he thought he knew about how the life, how this life or this world operates, and yes, yeah, so that that sets him off. And Claire North is she's got an amazing mind, and um, so for people who like science fiction, that's that is a goodie. Now we'll just go on to a sting, and then I'll talk about something else. For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz. That's Dunedin, A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M.org.nz. Hello again. Now, quite often in the library, people ask me what, because I quite often ask people, what do you like to 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 read? And then they tell me. And then they'll say, oh, and what do you like to read? And um. I like to read history, but the history of common people is is too far because you don't really have much history of common people. But I like to to learn about how people lived in the past. And I picked up this book in the public library called Not Just Jane, and it's by Shelley Deweese. And she she was a woman who who adored Jane Austen of course and the Bronte sisters and then she suddenly thought who else was writing at that time who who's just been forgotten and so she's dug out seven different writers and I'll just t- quickly go over one of them um Dina Murtlock Craig who was born in 1826 and her father was Thomas and he had um, mental illness and would quite often have psychotic episodes and sometimes would be violent. And 
his her mother was was also Dina, and she was born in Newcastle, and they lived. Um, in a sort of semi-rural area and she was quite a tomboy. She would go out um, playing in the fields and there was a stream nearby and she would uh, make rafts and go rafting on the stream and, and things like that. So she, she had quite an idyllic childhood in some ways but um, there was also the the constant uh, presence of her father and like I said, he, he could be violent. In fact, the police were called out on him at one stage. So... They moved to London um, when she was in her teens and although she probably wasn't very happy to go from a rural idyll into London, it, it probably worked out best for her. And then her mother died when she was 16 years old and her father immediately deserted the family. He packed up his belongings and told him he was told them he was no longer interested in supporting his family. Um, she had two um, brothers as well, and that they had to fend, they would fend, could fend for themselves. He was he was out of there, and as he was packing his bags, she she kept talking to him and trying to say, "Well, don't go. Why are you doing this?" And he wouldn't even talk to her. So that's quite a traumatic thing for a nineteen-year-old to be left. To fend for herself and two younger brothers in in London, but she had already um, displayed an interest in books. When her school, what she, her family weren't wealthy enough to send her to a particularly great school, but she went to a school, and the teachers there realised that she had um, an interest in literature, and that so they let her um, give access to their libraries, and so she was reading. Um, Jane Austen and such from from an early age, and then she started writing. So she she's deserted. She's got two younger brothers, and she decides that she's going to support herself by writing. And she started. Um, this was a time of greater literacy, and new publications um, like magazines were coming into the market all the time. And each magazine had a slightly different clientele, and so she went and sold. So she would tramp around London selling different stories to different magazines and she quickly learned what sort of stories appealed to each magazine and she wrote tailoring her stories to the magazine that she wanted to sell them through. And so she actually, she was able to maintain herself, to keep her house and and have a reasonable standard of living. But of course, she knew the value of money because she she always had to go earn it. And then when she was um, twenty one, this is the sad thing: she was nineteen with no money, and she had an inheritance, but she couldn't get it until she was twenty one years old because her mother left her um, um, a trust of four hundred pounds a year, and she so she had three years in which she had to s- support herself, and then she came onto this money, which was quite quite a reasonable sum of money and that gave her the free, financial freedom to to not be so um, bound by deadlines and so she started to write novels and she actually wrote four novels and she was paid £150 each for, um, for them and each novel did reasonably well and they went into extra editions and so after four novels, she asked her publisher for an increase, and they refused. And she 
was so incensed by this, she immediately went elsewhere. And she went to a publisher called Hearst and Black Blackall. And she had this new book called John Halifax, Gentleman. And the new publishers, they paid her £300 outright, plus £100 after a hundred. After 1,200 copies were sold, plus half the profits of any second editions. And this was published in 1856 when she was 30, and it was a massive hit. And the only book that outsold it was um, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was a sensation as well. And the only um, English author that outsold her was Charles Dickens. And she... So this was a book about a man who started off as a basically a labourer, but he was such a upstanding person that he was able to progress through the Victorian system and ended up as a gentleman. And he was just sort of the perfect person. Um, of course, the literati were unimpressed. Um, his squeaky clean habits were irritating and his ability to rise into financial success could not in itself make him worthy of of gentry drawing rooms he might be self-reliant energetic and kind but he would not he could not attain the bearing and manners of a fine gentleman which he actually does in the book and I think that's what appealed to the great um, middle class reading public that had opened up and it just made her it made her so much money but she apparently she was she terrified her publisher, Henry Blanket. He turned pale at her sturdy business-like stand for money and would tell others of the experience with a front and very grave, not able to laugh because it was just so appalling that a woman would stand up for herself and say, well, you know, my books do really well. And, you know, they were making a heap of money, but um, she, she wanted to have her, her fair share of it and she insisted that she did. So... So while professionally she was doing very well, her um, her personal life was not so great. Um, she had, like I said, she had two younger brothers, and Tom had been had a promising career in art, but he had gone for a sailor's commission to make ends meet, and he tragically died before the ship left harbour on its second voyage after he fell from the mask and broke both femurs. And then his, her other brother, Ben, who I think probably took a bit after her father, he bounced from one profession to another for a long time, sometimes staying with her. And then he went to Australia to try engineering, and then he went to Brazil to photograph the new railways. He was unstable and volatile and gave her anxieties. But she still she loved him because um, he was a link to her past. But eventually his mental derangement meant that he had to go into an asylum. And five days after his incarceration, he attempted to escape and died from injuries sustained in the process. So she was all alone and she was sort of, she was very devastated by that. And she decided to move, to sell it from, in London and to move up to Edinburgh. But this another twist in her tale is that she had met a man called George Lily Clark the Younger. And he was an accountant and he actually lived in Glasgow and he she had met him through his um uncle who had she had the same name and in 1861 this is um while she was still in London he was involved in a train crash 
and it was sort of a bit um, hazy how how it happened. But he was in this train crash, and he had to have um, one of his legs amputated. And there's various stories. Um, this story that he his train went off the tracks and depositing him onto snow to bleed to death. He did not know anyone who could attend to him, and and they asked him if he knew anyone who could attend to him in his convalescence and he could only stammer out Miss Murlock before passing out and she was summoned to his side and another version says that the train was smashed to bits near her home and that she opened her doors to the injured and um, other versions place her, him in a hotel for his operation and she was on hand only by happenstance so whatever thing is somehow he ended up living in her on her couch shorter leg and he was about 10 years younger they um he was 24 and she was 33 and a flirtation developed and so he he recuperated in her at her house for for about a year and then when he recuperated he returned to Edinburgh and then after her brothers died she went up to Edinburgh and next thing she's engaged and so that's two years after the train accident and um, it was a very very happy marriage although they for whatever reason they I mean maybe she was a bit too old and um, he had his injuries they never had children and the other thing she did is that the, a baby was abandoned at a church nearby to where she lived and she immediately um, swooped in and grabbed the baby and um, adopted it. And everybody around, all her friends said, oh, I don't think this is a very good idea because, of course, the baby has probably been born in sin and the Victorians felt that the sins of the parents were visited on the baby. But um, Diana wasn't having any of it. Well, Ashley, I've I've gabbed on for too long, and um, happy reading. Um, I'll see you in a fortnight's time, hopefully with Beth. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room, and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information, or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.